Welcome to episode 32 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. This episode will focus on Sweden as part of a mini-series on the states in the far north of Europe. This will generally be more cheerful than our last episode on Norway, if for no other reason than that Sweden has roughly 10 times the Jewish population of Norway. Norway has, if we count generously, roughly 2,500 Jews, whereas Sweden has 25,000. The history of Sweden is closely intertwined with all of its neighbors. Uh, If you'll recall, at one point, Norway controlled much of northern Sweden and really a large empire that included Iceland, Greenland, many of the small islands around Scotland. They built the foundations of Dublin. They were quite an expansionist power, but that was in like the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. And Norway sort of peaked back then, where Sweden had not yet begun its own major expansion. Modern Sweden was formed over a very long period of unification and consolidation, but there were very few written records, particularly from anybody outside the region. So most historians conclude that the history of Sweden begins somewhere between the 6th and 16th century, because what, what they mean by that is written history where we can compare different sources and different observers. Um, There are some common laws that were present from the second half of the 13th century. At the time, Sweden consisted mostly of what is today the southern extreme of Sweden and parts of modern Finland. But over the next few centuries, Swedish influence would expand far to the north and the east, even if the borders were often ill-defined or even non-existent. By the late 14th century, Sweden was becoming increasingly intertwined with Denmark and Norway, with all three eventually uniting into the Kalmar Union that I mentioned in our last episode on Norway. During the following century, a series of rebellions lessened Sweden's ties to this union, sometimes even leading to the election of a separate Swedish king. The fighting reached a climax following the Stockholm bloodbath in 1520, a mass execution of accused heretics orchestrated by King Christian II of Denmark. One of the few members of the most powerful noble families not present, Gustav Vasa, was able to raise a new rebellion and eventually had himself crowned king in 1523. His reign proved to be lasting and marked the end of Sweden's participation in this Kalmar Union. Vasa encouraged Protestant preachers and finally officially broke with the papacy and established the Lutheran Church of Sweden, seizing Catholic church property and wealth, and thereby financing his reign. During the 17th century, after winning wars against Denmark-Norway, which were still in a kind of union, with Norway as very much the junior partner, also wars against Russia and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which, if you recall from our Ukraine episodes, or our Baltic episodes for that matter, at one point the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth stretched from the Black Sea to the North Sea and Baltics and was a huge region, including much of what is today Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, etc., etc. 
You will also, I hope, remember that during the 16th and 17th centuries, Europe was plagued by wars of religion, seeking to define which countries were Catholic, which countries were Protestant, where the frontiers lay between the Catholic world, theoretically controlled by the Pope in Rome, and the Protestant world, which was much less centralized. The Swedish state expanded enormously in this period into the modern Baltic states, northern Germany, several regions that are now part of Sweden in the north, but were not then part of Sweden, and also into the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. At one point, you may recall from our episode on Lviv, the Swedes even besieged that city, which is well into modern-day Ukraine, and which for many centuries was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Sweden played a decisive role in the Thirty Years' War and helped to determine the political and religious balance of power in Europe as a whole. Just before the end of the 17th century, a secret alliance was formed between Denmark-Norway, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and Russia, all banding together to combat the growing influence of Sweden. This coalition launched surprise surprise attacks against Sweden in the beginning of the 18th century. And in 1721, Russia and its allies won the war against Sweden. As a result, Russia was able to annex the Swedish territories of what are today the Baltic states and also Karelia, which used to be part of eastern Finland or the far east of Sweden, but it's the part of the Kola Peninsula that has been part of Russia ever since 1721. This effectively put an end to the Swedes as an imperial power and certainly limited Sweden's power in the Baltic Sea. In the 18th century, Sweden joined in the Enlightenment culture of the day, both in the arts, architecture, science, learning, and rapid urbanization. In another war with Russia at the very beginning of the 19th century, Finland was lost in a war that only lasted from 1808 to 1809. The relationship between Finland and Sweden remains a curiously ambivalent one. Finns feel like they were enslaved or treated like serfs by Swedes, and yet the Swedish minority population in Finland, defined as anybody who speaks Swedish as a mother tongue, is highly protected And there is a sort of official bilingualism that requires all Finnish students to learn Swedish in school and that results in a very odd habit that I haven't seen anywhere else in the world, which is bilingual signs in Finnish and Swedish at the entrance and exit to every city. So welcome to Helsinki will appear in Finnish first, Swedish second, and English third. And many towns have two different names, one in Finnish, one in Sweden. And there are towns, including some significant ones in Finland, where a majority of the population is Swedish-speaking. What's really interesting, though, is that in smaller places, let's say a town or a village with a population of 600 people, the balance could be very close. It could be you know, 298 to 302 or something, so that if a few people die or a few people are born or a few people move out, the majority 
could change from Swedish speakers to Finnish speakers or vice versa. When that happens, and I don't remember if it's every year or every two years, but all the signs are changed. So the majority language is respected and I assume that they keep all these signs in a warehouse because they have to change them fairly often. It would be silly to repaint and create new signs every time the population balance shifted. Back to Sweden's warlike history, and we will end this in just a moment. Sweden's last war was the Swedish-Norwegian War in 1814. Sweden was victorious in this war, leading to the Danish king being forced to cede Norway to Sweden. Norway was then forced to enter into a union with Sweden that lasted until 1905, when it finally became truly independent. Since 1814, at the conclusion of this Swedish-Norwegian war, Sweden has been at peace, adopting a non-aligned foreign policy in peacetime and neutrality in wartime. During World War I, Sweden remained neutral but let the Germans travel in the country. Post-war prosperity provided the foundations of the social welfare policies that are so closely associated with modern Sweden. In World War II, Sweden once again remained neutral, avoiding the fate of occupied Norway. Now, one interesting factoid, for me at least, is that even though Sweden and for that matter, Finland also, and Denmark, are part of the European Union. Only Finland has adopted the euro as its currency. Norway, which is not part of the European Union, Sweden, and Denmark still use their respective kroner, which are slightly different in value. So there's an exchange rate between Norwegian kroner, Swedish kroner, and Danish kroner. And it's one of the few parts of Europe today where you actually have to change money when you cross the border instead of using the common currency that's used throughout most of the European Union, which is the euro. Now, even though the Jewish community of Sweden is about 10 times bigger than that of Norway, its history is in some ways both shorter and bleaker than the history of the Jews in Norway. In 1680, the Jews living in Stockholm petitioned the king that they be allowed to reside there without abandoning their religion. But this application was denied because local church officials, these are Protestant church officials, refused to endorse it. In 1685, Charles XI ordered the governor general of the capital to see to it that no Jews were permitted to settle in Stockholm or in any other part of the country, quote, on account of the danger of the eventual influence of the Jewish religion on the pure evangelical faith, unquote. In case Jews were found in any Swedish city, they were to be given 14 days to leave the country. Through court patronage and private connections, Jewish merchants were occasionally appointed as royal purveyors. Charles Twelfth usually had one or more wealthy Jews with him in the field as paymaster general of the army abroad. So not necessarily living in Sweden, but traveling with the Swedish armies. In 1718, Jews finally obtained permission to settle in the kingdom without the need to give up their religion. After the death of Charles XII in 1718, the Swedish government was financially strained and the royal household often depended on 
Jewish merchants in Stockholm or moneylenders who insisted in exchange for the granting of additional civil rights to themselves and their co-religionists. As a consequence, the concession of 1718 was renewed and supplemented by royal edicts in 1727, 1746, and 1748. But permission was still restricted to settlements in smaller cities and rural communities. It was still difficult, if not impossible, for Jews to settle in the biggest cities, such as Stockholm and Malmö. Finally, in 1782, just a few years before the French Revolution, a law was passed by which Jews were restricted to reside in one of three towns, Stockholm, Gothenburg, and Norrköping. These at least were bigger towns, and eventually other towns were added, but Jews were not permitted to own property, they were ineligible for government positions, and they could not be elected to the parliament. They were also forbidden from converting Lutherans to the Jewish religion, which was unlikely to happen in any case. Stockholm's first synagogue opened in 1796, and the Jews of Stockholm invited a rabbi from Mecklenburg in what is today Germany to officiate as their rabbi. After a few years, this synagogue was found to be too small, and the Jews in the capital selected a different location where they worshipped until 1870, when the large Stockholm synagogue was inaugurated. By 1905, the Jewish Encyclopedia reported that there were synagogues in all of the larger Swedish cities in which Jews had settled in any considerable number. During the second half of the 19th century, the few remaining obstacles to full equality of Jews were removed, and they were granted the right to do almost anything they wished. There were, of course, various privileges which the Jews, like any other non-Lutherans, could still not obtain. By 1905, the Jewish population of Sweden was conservatively estimated as being 4,000 souls. By 1920, that had nearly doubled to 7,500. During the pre-war years, of Hitler's power, some 3,000 additional Jews migrated to Sweden to escape Nazi persecution. Because Sweden was neutral during World War II, it helped to facilitate the rescue of quite a few Jews from Norway and almost the entire Jewish population of Denmark. In the 25 years following World War II, the Jewish population of Sweden actually doubled and ended up at nearly 20,000. Today, there are basically Jewish communities all over Sweden. The largest communities are those of Stockholm, Gothenburg, and Malmö. Several of these communities have more than one type of synagogue. They have an Orthodox, a conservative, an egalitarian, a reform, a progressive, whatever. By different names, there's a wide variety of organized Jewish life in modern Sweden. But life is not a bowl of cherries for Sweden's Jews. First of all, to be an observant Jew in Sweden is challenging. Ritual slaughter, according to the laws of Jewish dietary laws, the system called kashrut, is illegal, inspired by anti-Semitic legislation that took place in much of Europe back in the 1930s. Importing kosher meat results in very high prices for the consumer. Also, circumcision is permitted only with the use of an anesthetic plus a nurse in attendance. 
there's also a city in which a major conference to combat anti-Semitism just took place, largely because of the repeated and growing number of incidents of violent anti-Semitism in what is Sweden's second largest city, Malmö, very close to Denmark. And in Malmö, the current Muslim population is almost 50% of the total population, numbering about 160,000. And the Jewish community has shrunk to only 600. So Jews are greatly outnumbered by Muslims, many of whom are recent immigrants from failed states like Somalia, Sudan, whatever, attracted to Sweden because they instantly get as refugees full benefits of the social benefits that all Swedes get of free education, free health care, whatever. And if they can't find a job, they're still entitled to all of this and they can bring family members. So Sweden remains a very attractive destination for these immigrants, but it is largely these immigrants rather than long-term Swedes who engage in violent acts of anti-Semitism today. To its credit, Sweden is trying to do a much better job of Holocaust education at the high school level so that every kid who graduates high school has some sense of the horrors of the recent past, which is more than I can say for our own country, and in a variety of ways is trying to extend its hospitality long overdue to its Jewish community. This is complicated by the fact that Sweden is extremely sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians, and it's easy for Swedes who are not sophisticated in world affairs to confuse Jewish attitudes with attitudes of a particular Israeli government or even a particular Israeli government official. But Sweden is working on these things, and I think they're working in a positive direction. So let's end this session on that optimistic note and look forward to our next session together, which will most likely be devoted to Finland. Thank you very much, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.